A dad, husband, new grandfather, and proud parrot owner, this man had no idea one day in May 2015 would be his last. When his body was found, police were startled when his wife, lying shot beside him, sat up and began talking. However, the possible victim later seemed more likely to be involved. While his family waited for justice, his feathered friend was squawking for it. This week's episode is The Murder of Marty Durham and the Story of Bud the Hero Parrot, Part 1. A bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Shout out to the folks that have sent this story in. I think. Initially based on the headline, but understanding like we do often with any case that gets a lot of media attention, there's so much more underneath the headline. Yeah. the I mean, who isn't going to click on a story where Bud the Hero Parrot's involved? That's, I mean, that's the best clickbait one could have. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is say, a man was murdered and his parrot may hold the key to solving it. And that is what every news headline said about it. And in so researching this, we had to dig a lot deeper to get a lot more facts about it beyond just he was a person who was murdered and also owned a parrot and not the things that really need to be told about it of this is a person that was maybe vulnerable and taken advantage of. And perhaps taking advantage of others as well. Yeah, it's wild stuff. Uh, So we'll get into all of that as we have. uh, It's all more than just a headline with uh, Bud the Parrot. You ever met a parrot? I have met a parrot in when I was about six years old. We went to South Padre Island and there was a restaurant or a place you could go to and they would have a parrot that could ride a bicycle, a little tiny bicycle. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like a 10 full size. It was a tiny bike. Appropriate for the parrot. For his size, yes. Yeah, you put it on one end of the bar and he rode the bicycle down the... I bet my mother has a photo of it. It was impressive. I remember it to this day. Was it a unicycle? It was a vibe. Was a full bike. It had handlebars. I believe it had handlebars. Did his I wings touch the handlebars? I think he was doing it. You know, back when you're in school and you're like, think you're all badass and you're riding the bike with your hands above your head, like, look, okay, mom. Okay, yes, yeah, no wings. So no he wings, did it. mom. What a parrot encounter! Yeah, it was a good bird running. What about you? I knew a guy that had a pet parrot. I think his name was George. It's a good name. And. Um, he was green and he would just walk around his house. He they live forever. They're very loyal. Yeah. They like we'll see. They're very good at mimicking. Man, the audio that we'll link in the show notes of Bud yes. specifically. It's eerie. It's haunting. And we've stumbled down some other rabbit holes of other birds that have been witness to crimes or, you know, like I read in one article that this mafioso had a parrot for years and that parrot heard and saw things that that he should never have heard or seen it's apparently a big thing with uh if you're a drug lord or a mafioso or if you're a kingpin lifestyle that you want to own an exotic pet 
And in this case, when you own an exotic bird, you've just brought a witness into all of your nefarious dealings because yeah, they can repeat it. If not a witness, at the very least, a, a living, breathing tape recorder that can actually mm-hmm. mimic you exactly. Yeah. It's not the smartest pet for um, someone that's doing illegal activities, I would think. I, I personally would want something that can't repeat something in a court of law. Just a hermit crab. Something that makes no sound whatsoever. <laughs> a hamster. No, hamsters run around on those little wheels. <laughs> so they're they, out. You never know. They could see. They could get in their ball and go into the other room and see stuff they're not supposed to see. That's true. Yeah. And then one day we'll all have the ability to upload our pet's memories to the cloud and watch those in a court of law. This is really in the future, but I'm yeah. predicting it. I think you probably can. They're going to be able to, they're going to chip us, be able to read our memories. I told you that there's a, a there's an ability to translate brainwaves into images. So we're getting there. We're not too far off. If we can do no. it to humans someday, well, we may be able to do it with pets and you just get the worst self. It's like when you open your phone to the selfie camera and your face looks horrible. That's the <laughs> angle my dog gets. She's a chihuahua. She's oh, tiny. Yeah. She gets the worst angle of me. Just, they meh. see the worst of us. Yeah. We're never yeah. at our best around them, but no. they still love us. And that's why we love them. And Bud certainly loved Marty. Oh, yeah. And True. others too, as we will hear. True pet friendship. Well, if you're listening to this, you're listening to it on the day it came out, which would be April 19th. And Christy, what are we doing? Where are we going as people We're are listening to this? We're in Denver right now. There it is. And, well, right now, currently we're not, but in the future we'll be in Denver and we will be at Comedy Works in downtown Denver, uh, a live show, 7 p.m. tonight. Be there or be square. I'm bringing that saying back. (laughs) Don't be square. You got to be there only. There's one choice. And tomorrow... April 20th, we'll be in Salt Lake City. Where everyone goes to celebrate 420 Utah. Doing it the right way. We're celebrating (laughs) 420 in Salt Lake City with you at Wise Guys. So come on down and see us. Sinisterhood.com slash live shows in just a week. We'll be in Austin, Texas. And a couple days after that, May 3rd, we'll be in Houston, Texas. So many shows throughout the summer. But go to Sinisterhood.com slash live shows and uh, see us somewhere out and about. We want to see you out in person instead of just your headphones. But uh, if you love listening to us on your headphones and you want to tell the world how much you love us, Christy. Maybe you'll throw us a vote. We're still in third place. I checked earlier. Great. So, But you know what? Based on an email, it was like, don't get comfortable if you're in first place. We're looking at you, Stephen Colbert. (laughs) So... (laughs) We still have time. <laughs> now, if you wonder what we're talking about, we are nominated for Best Comedy Podcast for the Webby's Award. It's like the online awards for uh, excellence in digital media. And we're up against heavy hitters like Stephen Colbert and Comedy Bang Bang, who are currently beating us. We're also up against heavy hitters like Latinos Out Loud, as well as uh, the, the Daily Show podcast with Dulce Sloan and Josh Johnson, who we are somehow beating them and only due to your votes, I'm sure. But we can't take out Colbert without you. <laughs> no. And you know what? I'm okay. Losing to Colbert <laughs> yeah. in Comedy Bang Bang. I'm fine with that. But wouldn't it be funny? Yeah. And maybe if we won, maybe Stephen Colbert is like, well, I have to have 
the ladies that beat me at my own game on the show. Oh, okay. and then that's how we get in with Stephen Colbert. Done and done. Now we're talking. Yeah. So if you want us to become friends with Stephen Colbert and tell you all about what it's like, as well as you'll be able to choose our five-word acceptance speech, we've already made that promise to you, go to Sinisterhood.com slash Webby's, W-E-B-B-Y-S, or check the episode description in the show you're listening to. should be a link right at the top. You just click it. you got to put in your email, and it's a pretty easy, uh, pretty easy thing. You can share it on social media if you would like to help us because we definitely want you to choose our five-word acceptance speech and have Stephen Colbert go who the hell are these broads and why did they beat me and what are they saying why is there a puppet on stage what's even happening so it's up to you though yeah it's up to you so you know our fate is in your hands but whatever mm-hmm. don't no no pressure or anything no pressure. McGruff has made some threats if we don't win but uh you know we're gonna we're if you need to have proof that McGruff is on one as yeah. the kids say yeah. He's coming on tour. Yeah. And he's, he's in vacation mode, everybody. I'll I'll have by the time you hear this, I'll have a photo of him on our social media. He's getting he's doing it piece by piece. Right now he's got some sunglasses and crocs, but I'm thinking underneath that t- trench coat he's wearing party he's got a party outfit on. It's, a, <laughs> it's summertime for McGruff. <laughs> he's he's not messing around. So, yeah, if you want to see him, yeah, head to our social media. But we'll bring him on stage with us if we win this Webby with your help. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. I'll do <laughs> he it. will also be on stage with us, at least some, during our tour shows. So, oh, yeah. it's just another reason you need to come out to the live shows. They're Meet super fun. And McGruff is going to add some sexiness to it all. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> We're not responsible for what that dog does <laughs> to you or at you. So. Yeah. Come see it. (laughs) Well, for now, we are going to talk about an animal of a different kind. A good, sweet animal. Although, what I hear from Marty Durham's mom, just as vulgar as McGruff. Well, he, you know what? He's repeating what he hears. So that's why I told you, I can't have a parrot in this house. No. He'd just be yelling, God damn it, all day. And (laughs) where's my chapstick? (laughs) Babe. Though that thing would say, babe. So. Babe, bring me a Diet Coke. Yeah. And then a bunch of stuff from our kids, you know. That's true, too. So, yeah. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Marty Durham was born March 1st, 1969, and his love for the outdoors began at an early age. He and his cousin Scott would spend their days hunting and fishing near their homes in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Scott told Discovery ID that he and Marty were best friends, closer than actual brothers, and that being outdoors was an escape for them, who were both the middle child of their families and often found it difficult to fit in. I think we would be remiss if we don't mention the, uh, there are two competing camps of folks with facts out there. And on ironically, they're all in this investigation discovery show, but despite being in the very same show, they have different interpretations of how the world were like how the the truth was what do you always say there's two versions of the truth i think there's three versions or three versions yeah yours theirs and somewhere in between probably lies the truth but it's interesting in this discovery id till death to us part episode we'll link it in the show notes that it does give two sides i personally like that because i i don't like when you're watching a show and you think well clearly one side of the family yeah. had a lot of pull in this and it seems a little biased, but because they're showing like several different opinions, then 
seems a little more balanced. Yeah, and that's what one of the issues that Marty's adult children took was with his cousin Scott, who they think they claim was not as close as Mar- to Marty as he would make it sound, and that Marty was had no problem fitting in. He had tons of friends, and yeah, they're cousins, but Scott's version or whatever. Scott seemed like a compelling guy to me in his interviews. He seemed like a person who loved his cousin and genuinely missed him. Very heartbroken, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When Marty was a teenager, he and his cousin Scott were working on a car in the driveway when a young woman named Glenna walked up and said hello. Marty asked her out on a first date to the drive-in movie. That night, he lost his virginity to Glenna. The pair dated for a while, but not long after, split up. Glenna then met and married Bob Norman, a friend of the family who was five years older than 17-year-old Glenna. Meanwhile, Marty met fellow teenager Christina Kelly. The two quickly fell in love and married in 1991. Christina gave birth to their first child when she was just 17 years old. At 19, she had two more. In addition to three children, the couple also had an African gray parrot named Bud. It's a pretty full house. Um, Oh, so young to be having babies, man. 17 years old, you have your first one. And then it's not as if she had twins at 19. It's just in succession. She had Irish twins, so she had two different children within the course of a year. Yes. And this is another situation where the investigation discovery, they're like, oh, he and Glenna knew each other and it was kind of his first love. And since then, his family came out and said, you know, they hooked up once when they were both teenagers, but it was actually after Glenna was already married to Bob. So, so then there, and then it's of course, well, yeah, if you're going to give an interview, you don't want to be like, well, I cheated on my first husband with them. And that's how we actually hooked up. Uh, But it's definitely painted as they were these kind of star crossed lovers and they at least knew each other beforehand. It wasn't just like a random second marriage later, Mm -hmm. but the, the pictures of he and Christina is, you know, young parents, they look so happy. They, he's got a, really epic mullet and all these oh, photos yeah. her 90s wedding dress oh, is also yes. very epic yeah yeah they just start looking look like a, a happy family with a couple of kids and you know just uh easter halloween dressing up he taking the kids hunting and things like that very young very young but happy 17 years old though whether she cheated on him or not he's 22 at that point the guy bob Bob oh, yeah. and his first husband. So, oh, yes. you know. And I think we'll talk about later on maybe uh, what that does to a person if they get married at 16, 17 and only ever stay married, no matter if it's to one person or multiple, mm-hmm. you know, and what that might do to you. In 1995, Marty had some bad luck. On February 16th, the police knocked on Christina's door at 3 a.m. Marty had been in an accident on his way home from work. He was T-boned by a large truck that sped through a red light, crushing Marty inside his vehicle, according to his cousin. Marty was clinically dead for five minutes as a result of the accident. He suffered a closed-head frontal lobe brain injury and several internal injuries to his intestines, as well as the loss of his spleen. And being in a small car where you have a car going 60 miles an hour, that kind of goes on top of your car. Yeah, Scott said it pretty much crushed the car from the top so you were just inside getting squished down yeah it's like a a can that you crush to go Mm -hmm. donate it yeah yeah marty survived a weeks-long coma before waking up in the hospital his cousin told discovery id when he woke up he was a different person he didn't remember almost his entire life just a couple pieces 
Heartbreakingly, he couldn't remember his wife, Christina, or the birth of their children. Marty had to ask Scott to confirm that she actually was his wife. He required over a year of rehabilitation to learn to walk, talk, and care for himself again. Yeah, and it's it wasn't that he had full amnesia forever, but for the first couple days, weeks, it was like, wait, who are you? Where am I? And you can imagine if you had to be out because you... They said like his intestines got jammed like way up into his chest cavity. I mean, your body had to get rearranged. I'm sure you're like dazed and confused. Yeah, a severe brain injury. And then you can't remember things about your life. Very scary. Also, super sad to be on the opposite side of that, to know that this is your husband and you've been there waiting for him to wake up and then he doesn't remember you or your kids. Yeah. That's a real difficult place to be in, especially being so young at the time and newly married. Yeah. And she said, you know, for it was uh, the first few minutes he was really, really foggy. And then it was just it was just progressive. Right. You know, just remembering a little bit here and there until finally after a year. I mean, but it's you have to relearn how to walk. Mm -hmm. His personality changed as well with his cousin describing him as vindictive and controlling. Christina, meanwhile, told I.D. that his attitude became very dark. One of the many post-accident problems that caused Christina to obtain a divorce. Marty bought his first house in Sand Lake, Michigan, with the proceeds of the accident settlement where he and his sons, Justin and Jason, moved in with Bud, the parrot. After the divorce, Marty met back up with Glenna, who was also going through a divorce from her first husband, Bob. Glenna's brother, Todd, told I.D., It was almost like they were destined to be together. Well, you all, you know, you go through a breakup. You start to wonder, I wonder what such and such is up to. You reach out. Maybe you find out they're in a similar situation as you. You're like, hey, what are you up to? How's it going? His um, family alleged that she contacted him, letting him know that her daughter was his daughter But then through some discussion of timing that that wasn't really it. And then it seems like they went, okay, well, it really wasn't that. Let's just, we can still date and be together. In 2001, after dating for a few months, Glenna moved in with Marty while her children stayed with Bob to allow her kids to remain in their schools. Glenna's mom told Investigation Discovery. Marty became her number one. In 2004, they got married at the courthouse in a ceremony with family and friends. To commemorate the happy occasion, Glenna got a tattoo reading Property of Master D on her shoulder. This was well, weird. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't like anyone to think of themselves or be told that they're the property of someone else. But I don't think he, uh, you know, the it didn't say that he told her to get this. It seemed like she was getting it of her own accord. Still strange. Yeah, that's, you know what? It's like, we're getting, we're not just getting married. We're going all in. I'm getting yeah. property of, and it looked from the photo I saw, you know, up in the upper right shoulder quadrant that if you were wearing a tank top, you'd see it. Oh yeah, for sure. Sinister Hood will be right back. Marty's personality had significantly changed after his accident. Glenna's mom and Marty's cousin both described how Marty became controlling of Glenna even going so far as to tell her how to dress and keep her hair. In later testimony, Marty's son Justin told investigators that Glenna and his dad often bickered, but about nothing too serious. He added something troubling, though. 
remarking how the couple would joke about killing each other. Although, according to Marty's son, Galena never sounded like she was kidding. She would say it so seriously. She always just creeped me out. I always told my family, if anything ever happens to my dad, she did it. She's crazy. Tommy and I joke around a lot, but it's never been about killing each other. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever said, you know, whenever I, I'll stab you to death. I'll stab <laughs> you to death right here. Like, or I'll, I mean, it seemed like it was more than, oh, shut up or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Which I even don't say that because I no. don't like to say things I don't mean. Um, and so. It's also <laughs> not funny to hear that from someone yeah. else. Yeah, that's true. To be on the receiving end of someone being like, I'm going to kill you. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> please don't. Yeah. And you know that there are tons of guns in the house because he, Marty's an avid hunter. Glitta would also go with him on, you know, hunting retreats. According to Scott, she often just sat in the truck and read romance novels. Chilling. I, you know, you do your own thing. You're together, but separate, I suppose. Right? Like, you enjoy yours. I'll enjoy mine. Yeah. But I don't want anybody regardless if there's guns in the house or not, joking about wanting to kill me. No, I don't like that, that it would, especially if it's other third parties are like, it wasn't like a joke. You know, when you start to get to a point of, you said it, he was laughing and you were not laughing. And to say it in front of kids adds a whole other layer. They, you know, they weren't like little They were teenagers, but it still has a serious impact on how you perceive your dad's relationship and her, and then probably also your relationships later in life with others. Right? You think, oh, that's an appropriate way for me to speak to my spouse or for my Mm -hmm. spouse to speak to me. As Marty's health began to deteriorate, Glenna became his primary caregiver. Starting in 2010, she began collecting over $3,100 per month for caring for Marty, In addition to the $1,100 per month, Marty received as a result of his disability. The couple was also known to sell drugs to subsidize their income. Justin told police in recorded interviews that he knew that his father and Glenna took painkillers and also dealt them, often taking pills to sell on a Native American reservation in the Upper Peninsula. And that's Glenna's... That's Glenna's cultural background is Native American. And she also was not just his primary caregiver as far as she worked full time and did this. That was her job. And she received money from an insurance company as a salary, as a caregiver. And so that really ties you to a person as far as that's now that's the only, you know, that's the only job experience you have. That's the only thing you do when you wake up and when you go to bed at night and definitely can like you said either you are you being controlled by the person whose entire life you're now financially tied to or vice versa this is a person that suffered a significant traumatic brain injury has mobility issues couldn't walk without a leg brace really like who's in control here yeah and police and other family members you know said that She seemed to resent Marty as the years Mm -hmm. went on for having to, you know, take care of him this way. I believe one police quoted that she thought he was a, quote, pain in the ass that, you know, she had to do this. So it's a position where if you're not the right person to be doing this, a lot of resentment can easily build up. Definitely. And I think for Marty's sake and a lot of people that suffer catastrophic injuries to where they can no longer work, but they like to do 
things that make them feel useful. He was like, he would do stuff around the house. He painted the bedroom or the bathroom. He replaced the gutters with the help of his son. The next door neighbors, Connie and Keith, he would ride his riding lawnmower around to mow their lawn as kind of like a, we appreciate you neighbor. And I wonder too, if you see, oh, well, you know, you're able to ride someone's riding, Mm -hmm. you know, ride your riding lawnmower around, but I'm supposed to go get you a sandwich now that then a person gets punished for trying to exercise their autonomy when they truly are disabled. It doesn't mean like, well, you have a disability. That means you have to lay around 24 seven and don't do anything. You can't get up from that chair. You better sit there and I'll bring you everything you need. Yeah. It's not an easy job on either side. Right. And you got to really have a good relationship that's solid and built on trust and love from the beginning to withstand something like this. And definitely a support system and a maybe therapy counselor, yeah. somebody that you can say, I'm feeling a lot of frustration as a caregiver or yes. I'm feeling this way. Didn't seem like that was going on here. No. When the Durham's neighbor, Connie Ream, was headed to work around 7.30 a.m. on Tuesday, May 12, 2015, she heard the blast of two gunshots. Knowing Marty hunted in the area, she shrugged it off as an early morning outing. However, later that day, Her husband, Keith, reached out to her. He was friends with Marty, and the two spoke regularly. That day, her husband said, Marty had not been responsive when Keith texted him, which Keith found strange. He sent a text to Glenna, saying in jest, What have you done with Marty? Which, these are their, like, it seemed like their BFFs. He said, it said that he texted him every day and that Marty was a lightning fast replier and that would always respond. They had been hanging out with him the evening before and seemed fine. They left their house, you know, nine o'clock the night before and were like, all right, you know, see you later. And you think, oh, okay, I'll text you in the morning. Hey, I thought of something. And then when you text him and there's nothing and the wife heard that gunshot a couple hours before. Mm -hmm. Some... Disturbing pieces of the puzzle start to fall into place. And Your you know when you when you're friends with someone and how everybody has like a way they text and talk through text and everything. And if you're quick or, you know, it might take you a few days. So you know immediately in the pit of your stomach something's not right, especially if you just saw them the night before. Right. And you're, he wasn't saying, oh my gosh, I've been feeling dizzy. I'm unconscious. You're just like, oh, it's like 830. He'll answer. Mm-hmm. That evening, Connie arrived home. She knocked on the door to the Durham's house, expecting the usual answer. She got nothing. She tried knocking on windows and other exterior doors, as well as jiggling the doorknobs to see if she could get in on her own. The only sound she heard was the barking of the Durham's dog, apparently from the main bedroom. Connie went home, but later texted Glenna, asking if she and Marty were home. Connie received no reply. And it's hard because it's a line between somebody wants some privacy or is it an emergency? Yeah, I think um, because they spoke so regularly and it was so out of character that it sent up some red flags. I think if you do want privacy and you have this kind of like we talk every day, you got to say, hey, look, I get I uh, I'll I'll hit you up in a few hours. I'm just have I'm dealing with some stuff right now. Right, that wasn't talk. the case. Yeah. The next morning, still concerned, Connie headed back to her neighbor's house. Once again, she heard the dog barking from the main bedroom. Yet there was still no sign of either Marty or Glenna. Connie returned home, but came back later, around three thirty p.m., and tried the front door again. This time, she found it was unlocked. 
she stepped inside and found the living room in disarray. She headed back toward the main bedroom, where she came upon a grisly sight. Marty was in his underwear, lying dead on the ground in a pool of blood. Near Marty's body was a pile of blankets. Connie realized that lying underneath them was Glenna. When Connie moved closer to her friend, she saw Glenna's face. It was pale and her hair was matted with blood. Terrified, Connie ran home, intending to call the police for help. However, on her way, she saw three firefighters who were in the neighborhood for an unrelated incident. She flagged down the men and headed back to the Durham's house. Once inside, Connie led the firefighters to the bedroom, where they saw the gruesome scene for themselves. Back a second time, something unusual now stood out to Connie. Despite believing Glenna was dead, she noticed now that Glenna's head had moved to a slightly different angle. Unsure whether it was her imagination, Connie didn't say anything to the firefighters. The firefighters did not check for signs of life, and Glenna lay under the blankets for nearly an hour. Yeah, that's got to be a feeling where you think, I know I checked the front door yesterday and now it's unlocked. And then, okay, oh my God, I just saw my friend. I'm going to run and get the fireman. And when we come back, wait a minute, I feel like her head was turned a different way. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, they're going to think I'm crazy. I'm just not going to say anything. Well, and it's not as if Glenn is moving about. There's no other than that, you know, it's there's not really any signs of life. By all accounts, she looks like she's deceased. So the firefighters are waiting on cops to show up. They don't, Mm -hmm. I don't, is that proto? I mean, I feel like any first responder is allowed to check for signs of life. This is where there was some, I think, uh, CYA where they're like, well, we, I mean, there was some misunderstanding because we thought they had, but then they, so the two camps where the firefighters enter and we're like, Clearly, this is a crime scene. We're going to go. And so they just didn't touch anything. And I think going off of a neighbor saying, my two neighbors are dead, like, because that's Mm -hmm. just what she saw somebody like lying in a pool of blood. So then the firefighters go, oh, we're not going to touch anything. It's a crime scene. Well, then they radio dispatch, sends police. Police came. And I think they're like, oh, the firefighters already cleared it for signs of life. We'll go in there and process the crime scene. But really, left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. No, no, no. And... I mean, I'm no first responder. I think unless it's 150% apparent that someone is no longer living. And maybe even in that case, you just put some fingers down by their neck, see if you can get a pulse just in case. Because you you never know. A mirror under the nose, you know, if you don't want to touch them at all, mm-hmm. something. But yeah, that was, uh, I think there was a little bit of, you're going to do it, right? No, you. But it was, it made headlines. A couple headlines were like, woman lays for an hour while first responders didn't do check. nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, well, it was like um, the Phoebe Hanschuk. Yeah. She lay at the bottom and no one checked for signs of life. And then later it was determined that. She was most likely alive when people first, when the um, hotel employee or the apartment complex employee first opened the door. Right. It's like we want first preservation of life and then preservation of crime scene. Yes. I think that's how it should go. Sinister Head will be right back. Soon police arrived on the scene. They entered the back bedroom and found Glenna, Marty, and the dog who had curled up next to Marty and was now growling at anyone who approached. Martin was confirmed dead. 
On the bed, police found fired cartridge casings and one unfired cartridge. The key to Marty's gun safe was also found on the bedroom floor. While the firefighters hadn't bothered to perform any life-saving measures on the victims, Sergeant Gary Wilson leaned down to check Glenna for a pulse. Connie was startled when she heard Sergeant Wilson speak to Glenna and watched as Glenna sat upright and yelled, What are you doing? Sergeant Wilson thought he had seen Glenna breathing, and this confirmed his suspicions. After a seemingly confused Glenna briefly argued with officers, they were able to calm her down and transport her to a nearby hospital. Well, that's definitely a uh, heart-stopping moment for everybody in the room that you have what you think is a decedent shoot up. Yeah. I mean, that's like (laughs) out of a horror movie. Yes. uh, Something that you have nightmares about forever. Right? I've got some questions at this point is where I start to have a lot of questions about what really happened. I will save them. First, so what do we think? All right. At the hospital, Glenna was treated for what appeared to be two gunshot wounds to the head. A neurosurgeon determined that they were on the right side of Glenna's skull near her ear. Based on the condition, the wounds were a few hours old. Her injury was superficial enough that it would not have resulted in a loss of consciousness and would have allowed her to be ambulatory after the blows. Yeah, and I think... The anything with your head, this is an Alec Murdoch situation. I think Mm -hmm. injury wise, I think it's exactly what Alec Murdoch did to himself on the roadside. And you see in there's uh, photos and on the investigation discovery episode where it's her ear pulled back. It looks like two shots hit her. One grazed her ear and cut a chunk of her right ear off. And another one hit her head kind of behind the right ear. But it didn't look like a through and through piercing. It looked like it maybe. Ate in there a little bit, but went out. It was there was a lot of bruising, and yeah. uh, the you know she'd obviously had stitches, but it did not look like a traumatic head wound from a gunshot. No, it does. It, you can, I think, factually say she was shot in the head, but when you look at it, it was more of a she was superficially shot. A bullet grazed the side of her head. As we know, all head wounds. There's a lot of blood that comes from them. So even that is going to have, like Connie said, her hair is matted to her face, covered in blood and everything, because stuff on your head just bleeds a lot. Yeah, I bet. And so then, yeah, you would look at it and go, oh, my gosh, like she probably is dead. Mm -hmm. Police searched the house and located the murder weapon. Police searched the house and located the murder weapon, a twenty-two caliber Ruger. They also found a pillow with holes in it, possibly used to contain the sound of gunshots. Both Marty and Glenna's cell phones were on site and recovered by officers, but both had been wiped of all fingerprints. Additionally, there was blood in the living room and kitchen that was later matched to Glenna. And crime scene photos show a, this is a well-lived-in house. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a, that's way a kind it. way to put it. There's yes. just a lot of things in it. I mean, it's the trappings of a hunting enthusiast. Um, so there's mounts all over the, you know, there's, there's a lot of animal heads on the wall. The, uh, even the couch is, has yes. bucks and there's a, the print is bucks. There's a lot of, um, papers on the floor and they did say when they came upon it, that the living room was in disarray. So it may yes. not have always looked so cluttered. There was, you know, just, it looked like it was definitely lived in and like this was something that, happened in the middle of 
a normal night. Yeah, and there's just like, you know, stuff on the bedside table, stuff on the dresser, mm-hmm. stuff on but it it definitely it you would it would require a careful combing of the crime scene and because the gun was kind of like half under the love seat, half under a pillow. Mm-hmm. On the ground. And it's like, well, God, there was also papers on the ground and a pillow on the ground. I'm glad I didn't step on a gun. Yeah. There's also uh, a gun safe that yes. had a ton of rifles and shotguns and whatnot in it. Crossbows. I think they, his family said there was like 50. Gosh. Marty's autopsy revealed he had been shot five times at close range, with some of the shots piercing his lungs and heart. He was also clutching a clump of hair in his right hand although its origins were not determined. For some, the news of the hair didn't come as a surprise. Marty's cousin Scott was married to a woman named Fran Phelan, a psychic practitioner who conducted readings. Having been struck with a vision of the crime, Fran contacted police in the days following the murder to provide them with information. She specifically mentioned the couple's hands, saying that their dominant hands were vital to the case. Marty was indeed right-handed. And had that hair in his right hand. Mm-hmm. Interesting that that wasn't tested and that we don't know what that's from. It seems like a lot of stuff that would just be kind of textbook with a crime scene was overlooked. Checking for signs of life, testing things that were on the victim's hands, under fingernails yeah. perhaps, in the hand. It's it's strange that... If that was done, it it's not in uh, anything that we've run across. Right, yeah, and I do think you asked about gunshot on her hand, and it's, I guess, because when they walked in, she's laying on the ground bleeding. They're like, oh, she's not a suspect, she's a victim. Take her to the hospital and help her, which yeah. I'm assuming would involve, you know, at some point washing the body, or she washes her hands, or touches the hair, or something, you know. You have plenty of time between the incident and being transported to also wash your hands or whatever else you have to do. Or um, if you had time after shooting yourself before you go and lay under a pile of blankets, you probably had time to wash your hands at that point too. If somebody also is having time to wipe the phones of any fingerprints. Exactly. Somebody and, and get their blood all over the living room and dining room. Mm-hmm. Fran had been right about something else too. She had told police it was vital that they look under the love seat or sofa in the couple's home. Indeed, this is where the revolver that had been used to kill Marty was found. Despite all the incriminating information, Fran told police she didn't think it was possible that Glenna had murdered Marty. Marty's immediate family disagreed. When police searched Marty's phone, they determined it had not been used after 9.34 p.m. on May 11, 2015. Glenna's phone, meanwhile, had been used. She sent a text message to a contact labeled Mom at 11.40 p.m. on May 11th and received a reply at 3.28 a.m. the next morning. Glenna's phone also made some interesting searches around the same time, including 3.32 a.m. Ruger safety announcements. 3.33 a.m. Ruger inside and out. 3.34 a.m. Ruger safety blue book. 3.35 a.m. Ruger safety announcements. At 4.48 a.m., Glenna's phone texted the mom contact again, this time writing, Love you. Sorry. Nine seconds later, she accessed a webpage titled, Ruger New Model Single Six Single Action Revolvers. After that, her phone was not used again. 
well, technology doesn't lie. So someone had the phone at 3.30 in the morning and was searching for a lot of information about the exact type of gun that killed Marty. Moments later. And I believe in some police documents, I believe according to Glenna's mother, the exchange between her and her daughter was frustration at Glenna had missed out on some family obligations. She had been at a casino and didn't come to uh, something. There was an issue with losing money and gambling at a casino and their mother was disappointed with her. That is explains the love you. Sorry. Yes. I believe that is why she said love you. Sorry. So the exact, the contents of the text messages, we don't have a copy of, but based on police reports, having spoken to Glenna's mother, that was the nature of their conversation at that time. And sometime between saying love you. Sorry. And nine seconds later searching uh, Mm. about the Ruger safety announcements in this very specific make model and type of gun that she was, that was in the house with her. Glenna's family told investigation discovery that following the shooting, she spent a month in a medically induced coma. However, Detroit news uncovered police reports where officers spoke with her in the intervening days and weeks after the incident. Authorities initially believed both Glenna and Marty had each been shot by a third party assailant. However, police interviews with family and friends soon painted a different picture. And she was awake. I don't know that she was like giving a full ass interview, but there's definitely documentation of officers going to the hospital and speaking to her and her going, I don't know. -uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I think so. And just kind of like, well, I don't feel good. Leave me alone. To which you have to. Leave her alone. She has had a, a head injury. You know, it's also. With head injuries, as obviously Marty proved, you can forget stuff. So it's a pretty convenient, whether she remembered or not, to be able to say, I don't remember, I've suffered a head injury. Yes, but it is interesting, I think, too, that her family, her mother on investigation discovery is like, she was in a medically induced coma. I mean, I think the narrator said she was in a medically induced coma, but we see, I see the police reports, you know, you and I always, why we always try to find first party documentation where no, an officer's like, I walked into the hospital and she was there and I talked to her. Yeah, it's uh, definitely two sides quickly having two very different stories and perhaps embellishing a bit to give a little more weight to their side. Oh, I think so, yeah. The day after Marty's murder, his children gained access to his house by using a credit card to unlock one of the exterior doors. Police had cleared the location, but most of the couple's belongings remained inside. As they searched their deceased father's home, they found something strange, a large manila envelope with three sealed envelopes inside. The manila envelope read, Personnel, and had the name of Glenna's mother on the front, Jean Waringa. The three smaller envelopes were addressed to Glenna's biological son, her biological daughter, and her ex-husband, Bob Norman. Marty's family believed these were suicide notes, intended for Glenna's family. A forensic examination determined these all were written by Glenna's hand. The contents were confusing with Glenna apologizing for vague transgressions she never specified. She also apologized for messing up in one of the letters. Another letter read, 
I'm sorry, but I love you and so sorry I've been a disappointment to you these last 12 years or so. Please forgive me. You're one of the best things I ever did. Love, Mom. It's interesting to note in this one, too. It all makes sense in a bit, but your is misspelled. Yes, uh, we should definitely point that out. Y-O-U-R is misspelled. And we have a copies of all three of these letters. I'll put them on our Instagram post so you can see them all together and what they look like. And specific, you know, they're clearly all three written by the same person. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, when a forensic handwriting analysis is conducted and also just like your eyes, you compare it to other things that she'd written. It's clearly from her. Yes. The same day that Marty's kids went to the house and found the letters in the manila envelope. They also took a look inside their dad's safe. Though later reports indicated that there was very little money inside, Marty's kids actually found two envelopes inside the safe. One was labeled Mount and contained $225, and the other was labeled Wave Runner with $1,200 inside. Glenna's relatives reported the missing money to the authorities, according to the Detroit News. When questioned about taking the funds, the kid's mom, Christina Keller, told Detroit News, They're young. They're stupid. They made some stupid choices. And I think that's what this was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, on the Discovery ID, they ask his daughter about it, and she gets real uncomfortable and says, I don't want to talk about that. And then later admits, yeah, we did it. But, yeah, they're 19, 20, 21 years old. You find a bunch of cash in your dad's safe. Your dad was just violently murdered. I don't know if you're necessarily thinking about, you know, uh, preserving a crime scene or where this money might go, but just trying to protect your dad the way you can now and get, you know, what you believe was to be his out of there before maybe someone else can take it. That's a good way to put it. And I'm sure I feel like that was their motive. Mount is and they said that he had spoken to them about both of those two things that he had killed this very specific deer and he wanted to put a mount in his den and he was excited about it. And that's what that money was for. And that they owned a wave runner and he wanted to fix it up for some event, you know, like, oh, well, I'll go to the lake in two months or whatever. So knowing that they had this event coming up that he was planning on saving it. And I think, you know, when you somebody you love passes away and you are going through the physical effects of their things, you know, it's kind of sweet seeing that, you know, daddy, daddy wanted to have his wave runner fix. Yeah. You know, daddy wanted to get that mount and you think of it. Oh, well the, we need to do, keep it for dad. Not. Yeah. And also if she's God knows what else she's done. I don't want her to get it or her family mm-hmm. to get it. So I think that's kind of where they're coming from. So I don't, I did not like in the investigation discovery show that there was an implication of like, well, these kids taking the money and what were they thinking? I'm like, man, let's not attract, like attach anything that the police didn't find anything nefarious. It was one of those, like, did you guys take this? And they're like, it wasn't a million dollars, you know? I mean, it was a nice chunk of change, but it's not going to, you know, change their lives or anything. I think it really was more, you see your dad's handwriting on an envelope that says wave runner and it hits you in the chest that this was something he was saving for. He'd talk to you about it. He was exciting. And to, you know, see that and physically hold it, it kind of puts a grim reality over the situation that he's never going to get to do that. And emotions are high and you make decisions. I don't blame them one bit. Not at all. And as a, you know, I used to do uh, estate planning and probate and stuff. And is there, theoretically, that's all part of the estate and that has to go through probate for sure. But practically as a human being, would I have taken it? Also, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
I I think I would have to. Because you're like, it's my daddy's money. No, yeah. It's not like I'm taking it because I'm like, oh, a couple grand. I can go buy myself something nice. It's I'm taking this and I'm going to, and this is what I would do, put it towards something he would have liked or mm-hmm. donate it to a charity that he would have liked or something like that. You know, I mean, it's, again, motions are in high in these situations. You, the His daughter was like, we walked in. His stuff was everywhere. It smelled like dried blood. You know, I mean, it's how do you, she's, she's going through stuff on the floor. She said there was stuff everywhere. She was just going through papers on the floor and just happened to run across this manila envelope. It wasn't even like it was set up on a table for people to, to immediately find when they walk in. It was kind of discarded. Yeah, when you look at the photos of the crime scene, you see the written envelope was in the living room kind of under some stuff, like the the manila envelope with the letters in it was kind of under some stuff. And then there was empty, like a fresh pack of manila envelopes in the restroom and kind of next to where the bathtub might be with an ashtray. So it looked as if someone was sitting in the bathroom smoking, writing these letters and then just left the the pen and the and the blank envelopes out there. And talking of his daughter, who's interviewed in the investigation discovery, the justice for Marty Page made it a point that right before he was murdered, she was pregnant with her first kid. And she had to give birth 13 days after her dad died. Mm. So you are like big as a barrel pregnant. What should be a really happy time. I mean, he had brought her baby clothes. You're now going through all this stuff in his house. Mm-hmm. Sitting yeah, on the floor pregnant with the stench of his blood around you going yeah. through his things. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can't, I'm not judging for what she did that day. No, no, no. Or her brothers did. Yeah. Sinister Hood will be right back. After her hospital stay, Glenna claims she suffered from brain damage and memory loss. Five months after Marty's murder. Glenna was subjected to a filmed interview with police detectives. She claimed she had no memory of what happened. However, she was adamant she had not killed Marty, telling the cops. I wouldn't shoot my husband. I'd be better off divorcing him and leaving him. According to Detroit News. She also denied using her cell phone the night of the murder to look up information on the gun. When investigators confronted Glenna with the lack of evidence of anyone else having been in the house, Glenna cried and continued denying involvement. When confronted with the letters, she said, I I could have written them. When I get in moods, I write them. Meaning she would sometimes write notes to her children. Glenna denied that they were suicide notes and left the police station without being charged. And her mom was in the interview with her, too. That was, was, I guess, allowed but but yeah. strange and glenn is clearly you know um overcome with emotion and her mom looks like she's trying to hand her a pill or something and glenn is like batting her hand away and you can just feel the frustration of her mom wanting to help her daughter and her daughter just wanting some space and the whole thing not really adding up and the yeah. cop keeps saying like could something have happened did maybe you did you turn the gun on yourself after Shooting Marty, you know, trying to kind of catch her in something, but she doesn't, she doesn't fall for it. Yeah. She just keeps saying no, no. Cause she's, she gets really upset and starts crying. And that's when he's like, well, if you felt this way, so devastated, did you do it? And then it's no, like she kept it up. Mm-hmm. Although her mom seemed to think when he brings the letters out, her mom's kind of like, first of all, it seems to me like the mom's like, yeah, you wrote these like, yeah, this is your handwriting. But then was like, 
Well, they see, yeah, they do kind of seem like suicide notes. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, I wonder if, you know, you don't have the story straight in the, before you walk in the door that her mom's like, oh, well maybe I'll help her and be like, well, if you just tell them that it was a suicide note, then we'll, you know, like it's three different competing interests that like Glenn is trying to save herself. The mom thinks she's trying to help and the detective's just trying to get it out of her. Yeah. Yeah. After his car accident in 1995, Marty had continued to maintain a good quality of life pursuing his passion, which was hunting. According to the Detroit News, he kept trophy mounts in the garage, showing off his accomplishments. A friend, Deb Lanham, told police that Marty had been wanting a new crossbow, but knew he and Glenna were on a fixed income and was worried about the cost. Deb told police that Marty wasn't one to splurge, adding, He always made sure the bills were paid. According to the Detroit News, what Marty didn't know was that his wife was hiding a huge secret. Rather than hunting, Glenna found solace in gambling, mostly with lottery tickets she frequently bought at local gas stations, as well as weekly trips to the casino with Marty. All told, she could spend four to $500 per week in lottery tickets, not including money lost during the casino visits. According to police records obtained by the Detroit News, Marty's brother Dan had complained of Glenna's compulsion for gambling on a family trip to Montana, saying, We always had to wait for Glenna to finish gambling. She took longer than anybody else. She also spent more than anybody else, feeding so many $100 bills into slot machines, she spent $75,000 at a local casino in 2010. And it wasn't that the family was, you know, super religious and nobody gambled at all. It was like, oh, yeah, we'll all go throw 20 bucks in here and there. But with her, it was like, wait, where is Glenna? And she's over in a corner And you don't know how long she's been there and you don't know how much she's pulled out of the ATM and you don't know what money that was that she was gambling away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Marty would go and participate in some. And Scott said it was just something for them to do together to kind of pass Mm -hmm. the time. He doesn't realize how much she's really passing the time with this when he's not around. Right. And if you think, oh, me and my spouse are going to go to the casino. I've got 20 bucks. Dot, dot, dot. You kind of assume they probably have the same. You don't assume there's something. They've got the vein open and are just like Mm. the family's funds are being, you know, completely drained. 75 grand in one year at one casino. That's a salary. You're going to end up, yeah, like on the high roller list. And at this point, she's getting not only the money from his disability checks, which she's earning for being his caregiver, but then... In the documentary, it was said that from his painkillers that Marty received, you know, he would he would take some for himself. But from one bottle of that, selling it off, he could get between two and four thousand dollars. And there's text messages that police recovered from Glenna where that's exactly what was happening of like, hey, I gave you this many pills. You need to give me this many dollars back. And so, yeah, if you not only are only making what you can from the, the government subsidy payment. And then you also have an extremely expensive habit like gambling and then you're selling drugs to feed other people's habits. It's a, you know, it's a lot of um, seedy things going on where not everybody knows what everybody else is up to. It seemed, yeah, it seemed like she was, cause they said in the family that he was like, oh, I always made sure my bills were paid, but that she had taken over caregiver totally and financial caregiver of mm-hmm. like, I'll pay the bills. I'll, it's fine. 
Although Glenna was supposed to be in charge of the couple's finances after her husband's accident, the money instead went to her gambling compulsion. They not only owed a hefty sum to the IRS, the couple was also in danger of losing their car due to missed payments, neither of which Marty knew about. Police further probed the couple's financial affairs and made a startling discovery. The day of the shooting, May 12, 2015, the couple's home was scheduled to be auctioned off by the sheriff's office as part of foreclosure proceedings. It was Marty's mom, Lillian, who first saw the notice of foreclosure sale in the paper and warned Marty about it. He confronted his wife, who complained it was the bank who had made a mistake, according to the Detroit News. In reality, it was Glenna's gambling problem that had plunged the couple into financial ruin. Yeah, they were saying in the weeks before the murder that people noticed weird stories. And one was Connie and Keith, the next door neighbors, had said that Marty mentioned, oh, it was so weird. A real estate agent came over about the sale of the house. And I told him he must be confused. And he was like, no, I'm not. And then Glenn is like, oh, but he was, wasn't he? Like I called, I told you, I called the bank, I called them. And he, the, the real estate agent was just confused. Gaslighting. Yes, she would gaslight him. And that uh, weeks before he was killed, there was a story that he had told family members. He's like, I'm so mad at Glenna. I'm so mad. And they're like, why are you mad? And he said, she threw $600 away. And they're like, oh, you mean like, oh, she wasted it on something? He's like, no, she told me that it was missing because by accident, she must have thrown it in the trash. And so then now we don't have it. But like, that's obviously a lie. Like she didn't just oopsie throw $600 away. She fucking gambled it. But if you want to make him mad, be like, well, honey, it was just an accident. You can't be mad at me. Yeah. It's just like emotional abuse. A hundred percent there. I mean, the whole relationship is just built on lies. Yeah. Yeah. Financial abuse. Yeah. But like he had bought that house, not just with, oh, this is the proceeds of I worked really hard. His body was physically crushed and he <laughs> almost died. Yeah. And that was the money that he used to buy that house. And because of her siphoning off the money that she got for caring for him, they were it was it was going to be sold on the yeah. courthouse steps. And everybody that knew him said he was so proud of his house. He it was I mean, and from the pictures, it's a big piece of land. Oh, yeah. Like when when he's driving his lawnmower around like that's he's doing a huge oh, favor. Yeah. It's, they have huge land and so does the neighbors, you know, but he was his daughter said he had it just the way he wanted it. He was very proud of it. He had no intention of, you know, leaving it anytime soon. Mm-mm. So he, of course, wasn't around to really see exactly how much damage she had done. But for his family to all of this come out and you see how she was, like you said, siphoning it off. It's just a further gut punch to know, like, we didn't know how much advantage our dad was being taken. Yeah. And then and that's what it looks like is that it is a. While he, I think he was completely lucid, aware, everything, but he was vulnerable. He had mobility issues. He had this traumatic brain injury. And you think, oh, my sweet wife that I've known since before I was even married before, like we've known each other forever is going to take care of me. Meanwhile, she had suitcases and her underwear drawer were filled with ripped foreclosure documentation like Mm -hmm. the notices they said she would rush to the mailbox of course he again he wore this leg brace and couldn't walk super fast honey honey let me go get the mail for you don't worry because she would get the mail and she would hide the foreclosure notices they had a landline honey let me get the phone oh nope you have the wrong number because it was the bank letting them know that the house Mm -hmm. was it takes so much to foreclose on a house yeah yeah to 
be in the dark about that. She really was hiding a lot of stuff coming from multiple offices trying to get you to, hey, guys. And then it's in the paper. So mm-hmm. if he, the her his mom saw it a month before it's supposed to go up, and he didn't even see that. No, but I mean, good thing. I always wonder who reads those because in law school, you learn you have to put a notice in the newspaper 20 days before the Monday of the sale of the house, you know, yada, yada. And you think, why do I do that? And in this case, he had some semblance of a head up, heads up. Yeah. Yeah. Sinister Head will be right back. While Glenna spent the months following the crime recovering in the hospital, her and Marty's estate was finally settled and the extent of Glenna's financial devastation was apparent. Over a year of missed $700 per month mortgage payments had lost them their home, on which they owed just $48,000. The couple had no savings, with the combined total between their checking, savings, and the safe at home coming to just under $500. To think about the amount of income, not just legitimate income, and the reasonable amount of expenses, because like they said, Marty was like, I don't know if I can buy a crossbow. That's a couple hundred dollars. Like, he wasn't out blowing it. It shows you exactly where it all went. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone said he was very frugal, that he, you know, didn't like having the heat or AC on. If you went over there in the winter, you knew to wear thermal socks and layers of clothes because he, you know, he was frugal. He didn't want to waste money on stuff like that. So 100% this is all going to her gambling problem. And for to have under $500 at the end of the day, and for him to not know about that, she was very good at being deceitful and manipulative. Exactly. And you think about what it takes to gamble that mortgage payment, not just once, but so twelve at least 12 times in a row, mm-hmm. and then just ignore all of those statements in the mail is... It's a gambling compulsion, yeah, but I don't think that that absolves you from the emotional and financial infidelity that you're committing against your spouse. Surely not. She clearly has an addiction to gambling, which, you know, leads you to do things you might not otherwise. What is she thinking? Uh, Maybe I'll hit it big and I can pay all of this back. I think that's usually what people think in these situations, like Alec Murdoch, and you dig yourself into a hole that's so deep that it... Just you don't really have a way out unless something like that does happen. A huge payout comes your way. But really, would you even use that to catch yourself up? Would you probably just put that back into gambling thinking I can make even more? Yeah, double or nothing. Yeah, I mean, and that's addiction. As the investigation seemed to drag on, Marty's cousin Richard suggested to police that they interview the other witness to the shootings. Marty's African gray parrot, Bud. On the surface, this may have seemed like a silly request, but given the intelligence of the species, it wasn't a bad plan. African grays are thought to rank among the most intelligent of non-human animals, including apes. Researchers have compared the bird's reasoning abilities to those of a three- or four-year-old human child. The police did not act, and Bud went into the custody of Marty's ex-wife, Christina. In the two weeks following the murder, Christina noticed something strange. Bud was reenacting an argument in two distinct voices. Scared, she recorded the bird's squawks. It had two distinct voices, one saying, Shut up! And, Get your ass over here! While the second voice yelled, Don't fucking shoot! 
Christina filmed the footage but held on to it, telling no one, terrified of what it may mean. So what do we think for this first part? So end of part one, we have Glenna is out free and not been immediately arrested. And I don't know how. It's bizarre that so much information came to light in a pretty fast manner, apart from the parrot situation. Yeah. And somehow she just was out and about. Yeah, she. I think she traded as long as she could on the I have a brain injury and I was shot, which I did not correlate the two until you just mentioned that during this recording, that if she cared for a person with a TBI for all those years, she might have been trying to mimic or fake mm. some of the confusion or the memory loss or something, you know, using her knowledge to do that. But the only thing I can say from police is that they were trying to be very, very thorough and perhaps looking at her financial situation and understanding she has nothing. She has gambled away this house. She's not going to like run off to another country on a passport. She doesn't have any foreign ties. She's not likely to commit another crime again. Let's just keep eyes on her and build the case. But for his family, they seem very frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I would be too if you kind of all know, not just gut level, but you start to have evidence. They start to piece together from being in the house where things are located, where she would have been located, where it appears she sat in a chair to maybe shoot herself and then would have gotten up and walked into the other room. You know, like the they're putting their version of events together that eventually you would hope the police would have their own version of events that's even more airtight. But meanwhile, this family is just pawing around the dark going, what the hell is happening? Like, what can we do having vigils and candlelight vigils and trying to get people into the case? Because it seems like nothing's happening. It was at a standstill. I think judging by what his kids uncovered and also crime scene photos and what the police uncovered, it does start to paint a picture of how the evening went as far as what I think Sure. So I think she would have, she shot him. She went to the bathroom, wrote out her suicide notes to her family, then went to the living room, shot herself, stored the gun, went to the bedroom, laid down. At this point is where I wonder, did she think she was successful and was going to lay down and die? Or was she just thinking, well, eventually he's going to be found. So I'm kind of going to start my whole act that I'm also a victim right now and just kind of wait for somebody to find us. I think it's the latter. And I think you're, you're right on the timeline. I believe his phone wasn't used after about 9.34 p.m. He was found in his underwear without his necessary leg brace that he had to have to walk, which they said, yeah, he took it off when he went to bed, sleep in mm -hmm. your underwear, take your leg brace off. So I think he was in bed and I think she came in and attacked him sometime in the night. People just didn't notice it. They live far out. I don't know. Well, and then and there, I, there was a pillow with bullet holes. So if she used the pillow to shoot him in the middle of the night, and then the two shots that Connie heard were her shooting herself. That's true. I think that's what it was. I believe she shot him sometime between then she texted her mother at whatever it was, four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. saying, I'm when she said 
4.48 a.m., sorry, love you. I think that's when she killed him. Then I think she wrote the suicide notes out in the bathroom. When you look at the crime scene photos, from where it what it appears is that if you were, this is horrifying, but I believe if you were sitting in the bathroom where the ashtray was, you would have a direct line of sight into the bedroom where you would have, you would see him. Mm. And then I think she, you're right. She went into the living room. There's a chair in the living room where I think she was sitting when it happened because he had the, she had reloaded and there was two bullets shot in the living room. There was one found in the couch that I think is what hit her ear and flew off. And then there was fragments in her head, which I think came from the second shot that I think maybe you're dazed or something. Cause they neurosurgeon said, well, we couldn't really tell that it was two shots, but from the count, the bullet counts of how many bullets were shot in which room, there were two shot in the living room and one was found. So I think in her head was fragments of the second shot. Mm -hmm. And I think she used that pillow maybe on herself because the pillow was in there too. Could have been the same pillow. Who knows? But I wonder if it's less scary if there's a pillow between you and that. Um, And then because it didn't really work or you think, well, it's bleeding so much. I'm going to bleed out. I'm going to go in there and lie down. If in a couple hours, your neighbor is knocking and then they stop knocking and walk off. You're like, Oh, well, I thought they were, well, let me unlock the door. So the next time they come by, I think she wanted to be discovered. At some point, she had to have unlocked this door. She, she would have heard the neighbors coming over. She's getting texts and stuff. And at some point she unlocked the door perhaps so someone could get in and find them. I believe that's what happened. I think Connie tried all the doors. And then when she went home and came back, it was like, okay, well now I'm going to unlock the door. So the next time they try it, they'll get in. So at that point, if that is what happened and this is, you know, speculation to a degree, it seems as if Glenna would be aware. Okay. Clearly I didn't die. I don't think I'm going to die. So do you think that her train of thought is, well, I'm just going to pretend I'm dead and no one will notice? I think she messed the house up because I don't think the description wasn't police walked into the Durham's house and it was just as messy as it always was. The reports were police walked in and when the family saw it later, they were like, oh, the house is destroyed. It's ransacked. It looks ransacked. There's Mm -hmm. like stuff all over the floor and stuff. I wonder if she thought he's dead. I tried to kill myself. This didn't go well. Now I'm going to try to ransack the place and make it look like an attacker. Yeah. Like somebody broke in and tried to rob us and we were both victims. Yes. So then why wouldn't, do you think while the first responders and everybody are there that she is awake and aware of what's going on and just listening I wonder if, because it did say that she was pale, that her face was pale, if she had lost uh, some blood and had been, you know, it's multiple hours, you know, you haven't eaten, you maybe didn't sleep so well that she might have just been like in shock, dazed, whatever. Or Um, just asleep, like you're in and out of consciousness almost. And maybe him touching her was like kind of a jolt. And then you wake up and you're like, oh, fuck, what's what's happening? (laughs) What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's probably more likely. 
It's and when you think about it like that and really break it down, it's so much more involved and premeditated and and yeah. and sinister than a crime of passion. I think, yeah, and I definitely think those the timestamps on the googling shows at least an hour of premeditation. You know, from three thirty a.m. to four forty eight a.m. googling, you know, several things about the gun and and I, yeah. So I you think, think she was googling before she killed him? Because I was thinking, which doesn't really make sense, but originally I was like, I think she killed him and then she was Googling that about the Ruger so she didn't fuck up when she tried to kill herself. Like, how do you take the safety off? How am I supposed to use this? That's a good point. That's a really good point because she's, and of course she's, as as of the time that we're stopping this episode, denies everything. We don't have any her version of it, but that's a good point of why you would need to search those things. Was it because you were about to shoot your husband and you wanted to make sure you did it correctly or you shot your husband and you were thinking safety announcements? What if it said, oh, be careful. If you don't put this latch, you'll accidentally shoot someone. Was she trying to set herself up to say, oh, I accidentally shot him? Mm. I don't know. I think talking it out i think probably she googled it before shooting him because if she were to shoot him she obviously knows how to use the gun she's goes hunting they have a ton of guns in the house i'm sure it wasn't her first time handling one so um but it was his dad's gun that they were keeping in the safe so perhaps she wasn't as experienced with that one True. So you got to Google to make sure you're not going to fuck something up that you're about to try and do. And then and then maybe she she did kill him around, you know, 4 a.m. or so. And that would make sense why no neighbors would have heard because 9 p.m., you know, people may still be awake. But 4 or 5 a.m., most people would still be in a deep sleep or if you're like a really early riser, you know, waking mm-hmm. up at 5 a.m. But that that's what made sense to me is that it happened sometime during her Googling, her searching, and then the the two shots at, in the morning that Connie heard were herself. That makes sense. Yep. I think that that is probably most likely what happened. Well, we're going to get into a lot more stuff with Bud, forensics, the trial, and more on the second part of this, which will come out next week. Part two. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this has been uh, I appreciate to all the people that have sent this into us throughout the years because this happened in 2015. So the story has been floating out there. But anytime we can dig deeper behind a headline, I do appreciate Mm -hmm. that. So and we'll do more of that with all the stuff on Bud the Hero Parrot next time. For sure. We love providing citizenhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. 
As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinister Hood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Emma the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And patrons at the Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment that they would like to see us live stream, and we're doing one in April and it will be April 30th at 8 p.m. Central. Nice. Those are always a ton of fun. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. And when is this month's, Heather? April 26th at 8 p.m. Central. There you have it. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirt, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop on the top banner. You can support the show fast, easy, and at no cost to you by rating, reviewing, and following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Speaking of reviews, you can easily leave one by going to Sinisterhood.com slash reviews. Yours may even be featured on our social media. Have a friend who you think would like us? You can easily share any episode with them by clicking the three dots in the top right corner. You can also share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting Sinisterhood.com slash playlist. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. Like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Watch all kinds of fun video content at YouTube.com slash Sinisterhood Podcast, as well as listen to full episodes of the show on YouTube. And you can find us on TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. We're also on Cameo, where we're available to do fun custom video shout outs for the person that you love who also loves Sinisterhood. If you want us to say happy birthday, happy anniversary, you got this. Good job. Congratulations. Whatever. Go to cameo.com slash sinisterhood. And we would love to deliver your message for you. And Christy, yes. where are you about? We got oh, go to ahead. do some fun ones in Portland out in the wilderness. So if we get them on the road, we film them on the road. So you might get some beautiful Utah scenery if you yeah. hit us up in the next week. Yeah, right. If you book a cameo between April, I guess, 18th and the 23rd, you will get some either Denver or Salt Lake or some sort of a mountainous background <laughs> in your cameo, or maybe like a green room cameo. We might oh, be in yeah. the green room. So True. yeah, it'll be an on the road cameo. So cameo.com slash Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Thanks, everybody, so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Liam Marshanik. Katie Hogshead. Summer. Kat Sack. Jocelyn Kimmel. Jolene Lynn. Megan Casimatis. Caitlin G. Grace Andrews. Emma Harrison. 
Kelly Bullock. Tobin. Catherine Drombowski. Courtney Chamberlain. KT underline 503. Jasmine Lemon. Caitlin Godin. Gabby. Jaime Hunt. And Caitlin McGuire. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We sincerely appreciate your love and support. We hope we pronounce your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Wahahaha. <laughs> 